This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Matthew Spencer, welcome to Better Reading. Lovely to be here, Cheryl. Yeah, really nice to have you. And in person, loving in person. And you've got a great setup, so yeah. thanks for having me. So this is debut fiction, isn't it? It is, first it book, is. yep. Matthew Spencer is a Sydney-based author and journalist. He was a journalist at The Australian for over 20 years, where he worked as an opinion editor and spent time running the foreign news desk. He has also been published in the Australian Financial Review and the Sydney Morning Herald, amongst other publications. With an honours degree in English literature, he has released his first novel, as we just said, a crime novel set in Sydney, very much set in Sydney, called Black River. He took inspiration from his own experience living at a Parramatta boarding school. Are we going to name that? We can name that. Yeah. Can I guess? Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. So it's King's. Yeah. Because I guess that's the only boarding school in Parramatta, isn't it? North Parramatta, yeah. North Parramatta. Okay. Um, in a sense, and we can talk about this later, there is a kind of a biography feel to Black River. Yes. Well, so as you say... I grew up, my, my dad was a teacher, my mum was a teacher as well, but my dad happened to teach at the King's School at North Parramatta. Oh, as well. And I was born there and lived there till I was 15 with my sister and my parents. And yeah, we just lived on the property in a, in a sort of modest housing that's provided to staff and their families. And there were probably 20 or 30 families who lived there. Uh, and what I'm interested in using the campus is not the institution, so it's not, say, a common room or a staff room novel, and it's, there's there's no students really in the novel because it's set between Christmas and New Year, so the place is empty. What I was interested in was the location, which is – the campus itself is quite extraordinary as an old – well, Oh, as a colonial estate, it was built, I think, by a um, shipping, a Scottish shipping magnate who lived out there in a, literally in a stately home. Mm. So I think Brideshead revisited and then, you know, it's a third the size of that or whatever, but it is a big old stone house out there. And 350 acres, remnant bushland, a tributary of the Parramatta River runs through the back of the place. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was interested in, the geography and, yeah, the sense of an empty, uh, deserted school campus. So that was a starting point. But also the idea for the book was that a journalist who had attended this school 30 years ago was sent back to report on a crime that's happened there by his editor in the hope that he will gain some access that his competitors in the media don't Mm -hmm. have. And so they're the two strands of of me that I've pulled together. Was it strange growing up? It's kind of you were brought up in an institution, if you like. 
It was a bit strange, I think, but so I think it was also it was idyllic as well. And because of the grounds, because of the people uh, and the grounds. Mm. So, and when I say the people, I mean the other families, the teachers and their families, not so much the students, because I'm talking about my childhood obviously was before I even got to high school or anything. Mm. And, and that time was really mm. special. So you went to another school? I went in to primary? a... Yeah, in primary school. And then mm. I ended up at the junior school of, of King's in year four. Mm. Um, mm. So I did do half my uh, junior school at, on mm. the campus. It's kind of more permanent than a border. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But also you're with your mum and dad. Yes. And, and my sister, and I had all these friends around me who were in a similar situation. So I, one way... Well, there were other families on the property. Yeah. So there would have been 30 kids like, like me and my sister, mm-hmm. and we were all a gang who ran around, you know, various ages and things. Mm-hmm. And the time we loved the most was when it emptied out at Christmas. Um, of course. Yeah. So we never went anywhere on holiday. We never went to the beach. We just stayed at the school. And we had this incredible place to roam around, you know, there were tennis... Because there's a pool. There's two pools and tennis courts and bushland. Yeah, wow. You know, there's paved roads, so we had bikes. Yeah. I mean, one way, I suppose, of, to think about it is maybe a, a sort of English village or something like yeah, that. That yeah. was a little bit like that. Or a gated community. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. With like-minded people. Yeah. I guess gated communities are that as well. Mm. At what point did you realise, like in terms of living there, that this was unusual, reflecting on how you were growing up? Like when you were go- growing up, did you think, well, you know, I, maybe I wish I was the kids that were going home to another suburb? No, never. No, no because I was going home. So I was, yes. much, I was in a much better situation, say, than the boarders yes. who weren't going home. And I think I knew from a very early age, even in years sort of two and three at at junior school, primary school, before I got there, I knew that it was quite a special place Mm. and I had a sort of special place within Mm. it. I'm starting to think that you might be an optimistic person. Um, Yeah, I think you could say that. Yeah, Um, because I think that that some people could have had a different experience. Yeah, and it depends a little bit on the teacher-parent. So my dad was a pretty level-headed, jovial fellow yes. and he got on very well with his staff friends and he sort of got on pretty well with the boys as well. Mm. Obviously not all of them. So that probably made things a bit mm. easier for me. And my mum was a teacher but not at this school, but she lived there as well and she was a bit the same. So she was interested in the kids and got on and got on well and, mm-hmm. and did sort of extracurricular things with them. So people, had, kids had come to our house and make candles or whatever it was. Because you're immersed in it, aren't you? Yeah. Do you think your sister had the same memories? Because when I think back at my childhood and there's six of us, hmm. very different memories of even the same events. Yeah. Uh, I don't think she had a, a bad time there. She went to a school just, which is really part of the grounds as well, called Tara, yes. which is just at the back of the place. Yeah. So in a sense, she had a similar thing to I did in that she just walked to school, you know, she woke up and walked mm-hmm. to school. And also there were a thousand girls there. Mm-hmm. So she mm-hmm. wasn't isolated in that sort of gender mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, she was a bit older than me and she mm-hmm. did grow up on a boys' school. And I think what, I don't want to speak for her, but I think what she would say is that my parents came down a bit harder on her mm-hmm. as she was hitting those 
mid-teen years mm. than they than they did mm. on me. So first child, girl, boys school. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine that would have been slightly tough for her. How far in do you go, you know? <laughs> so at your schooling, let's say you're in high school, did you start thinking then, well, firstly, were you a reader? Yeah, so reading... Reading's always been something I've done mm. and that's why I did literature. So it's really my first love. So I would say I love reading or uh, writing more than, say, I love journalism by a long way. Mm. And why journalism? I think because I did love reading and writing. We grew up with newspapers in the house. It was that era when newspapers were important. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad was sort of vaguely politicised, I suppose, in that sort of soft left Chardonnay socialist way yeah. that we you see a lot of. So I think that was what drew me to it. But also, I never thought I would write fiction. I never thought I'd write fiction six months before I started this book because I I had always assumed to write it, you needed to know your whole story and have everything mapped out. Mm. So I thought, well, I'm not going to do that. So maybe journalism's the next best thing. Mm-hmm. It's sort of on the periphery mm-hmm. of books and publishing. Mm. So talk to me about that career, about your time at the Australian. So I started, I was a bit old. Uh, Which isn't slightly left. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. I started there as what was known as a copy boy. Yes. And this was when... I remember those roles. Yeah. yeah. And there was, it was, in a way, it was great because it was giving kids an opportunity to get into the industry because the industry when I started, which it was the mid-90s, wasn't on its knees mm. because the internet hadn't come along. Mm-mm. So the rivers of gold were still flowing at mm. Fairfax mm. and the Australian was a fully staffed up broadsheet newspaper. Mm. There were probably 300 people working there. Mm, so, yeah, I got a job as a copy boy. I was old because I'd taken my time. I'd done a sort of honours degree, but over – so a four-year degree over five years. I'd had a year off after school. Then I travelled. You, you travelled? I yeah. travelled then and then I travelled afterwards. So mm-hmm. I was about six or seven years out of school when I landed there, and that mm. was old for mm-hmm. a copy boy. Mm. And so I started as a reporter and mm-hmm. probably did six or seven, eight years as a reporter, and mm-hmm. then I – jumped into the editing side of things and I became what's known as a a section editor. So they give you a section and it was your job to put it out every day. And the main one I did was the foreign news pages, Mm -hmm. which was actually wonderful because it's also interesting. Mm -hmm. And we could take copy from places like the Times of London, all the wire services, Mm -hmm. the Wall Street Journal. So you you could just go through all of that as it came in and then decide. And we had correspondence. I mean, we had three correspondents Mm -hmm. in America. Mm, We had them in India, Jakarta, Mm -hmm. Beijing, Tokyo, Mm -hmm. uh, South Africa. Now we'd well, there's hardly one left. Mm. So it was it was a it was a fun time to be there, uh, and you're obviously covering the major events. I think I started the role pretty well as John Paul II died. That was yeah, well, the first big story. That's interesting that you're talking about um, having different people on the ground, and the way we consume news now. So I'm. I don't get the hard copy of the paper, but I do subscribe to the New York Times and to the Herald, right? I read the New York Times every morning and I do wonder sometimes if I'm absorbing a cultural difference in the news I'm consuming compared to whether it would be an Australian writing about the same story. You probably are, Mm. uh, especially at 
a publication like that, mm. which is, you know, hyper-evolved and, mm. and... I love it. Yeah, and has a way of looking at the world, um, yeah. which seems to filter down into its, into its reporters and, and mm. things. So, yes, I think you would be... And you, I suppose you see it a little bit where, I mean, they've got a fellow out here, I think, in they Australia. Do. Yeah, and yeah, the way he writes about Australia might, yes. would be, and there's a Brit that the BBC have sent down and mm-hmm. the way he writes. Sometimes I can find that faintly annoying, especially, you know, the, the way they might look at Australia and then report on it. I, th- I would agree with you. Damien Cave is here for the New York Times, the Australian letter that comes out weekly. Sometimes those journalists don't live in Sydney either. One of them lives, I think, in Asia somewhere. And you get a sense of that when you're reading it. Oh, definitely, because they're not as plugged in. No, they're not as as plugged in. Uh, And I I think that with, I think his name's Nick Bryant, who worked for the BBC. And I remember he, the, the ABC gave him a program on a, a, you know, a big story on maybe 7.30 or something. Yeah. And you watch it and you think, yeah, but we know all of this because yeah. we've heard it 15 times. And it was all sort of, it was an election story. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so in a way, it would have been a great story for the Brits to see. But, yeah. And I think they throw to them because of, you know, there's a bit of, I don't know, it's still a bit of cultural cringe yeah. or something going yeah. on. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I was thinking too, I'm addicted to podcasts, I would say. Maybe before the day starts, I might listen to two or three, and they're usually American. And I was listening to a conversation the other day about gun control. Well, now they're changing the message. It's now called gun safety. They've decided that control's not working for the Americans. And this comes back to cultural shift. And it was a conversation about, you know, three journalists from, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, somewhere else. And I wanted to say to them, this is a futile conversation now because it's all an American point of view and it's too culturally entrenched. Gun culture is so culturally entrenched that even background checks or even whatever it is that you're thinking about next is not going to work because it goes back generations. And that's a conversation that Americans aren't prepared to have because here in Australia, if you're pulled up at a traffic stop by a policeman, the assumption is you don't have a gun and he's not going to use his gun. That's the assumption. If I break into your house, the assumption is you don't have a gun and I don't have a gun. And that's where the problem lies. And I don't know how you fix that. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even I wouldn't even sort of deign to comment on the gun debate in America for no. much the same reason I just exactly. said about people out here. But all I would say about it is, and when that last atrocity happened, I was talking to my daughter oh, who's terrific. 17 and they're sort of just catching up with this mm. and they can't get their head around it. My only take on it was, well, thank God we never have to have mm. that discussion again in mm. Australia because we've had it and we dealt with it. Mm. Obviously, it was it was difficult to deal with, but it was much easier than the problem they face. But good on us for doing it, and hopefully, we never have to face a situation. No, like but that. what what I was getting to is the fact that I'm listening to three Americans talk about something that is a cultural problem. And mm. regardless, I mean, you know, they should have had an Australian on a panel if they're really interested yeah. in what's happening, you know, yeah. or they had someone from New Zealand or whatever. Mm. But it's not even about the law. It's mm. about how you actually perceive the world, isn't it? Yeah. And don't forget, every time this happens, they do wheel out an Aussie and they mm. talk about our, what we did. So mm. they know enough, of, they know about it, but mm. yeah, how do you fix it? 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, that's a good segue, I think, to a crime novel, don't you think? Sure. <laughs> Talking about guns in America. Completely unrelated, but there is crime. Um, Tell me, so you alluded to the fact that you didn't think you could write fiction. So you've been a journalist for how many years? 20. 20. At what point did you think, well, now it's time? How long has this been brewing? Uh, Not that long, actually. I quit the paper in 2016. Why? uh, I'd had enough and it was an industry in decline in that they couldn't figure out how to reinvent their business model. So Mm. a lot of people have been let go. So I had a great job there as opinion editor, but I also had two or three other jobs. So I was just sick of it. And my wife works very hard and is very successful. And so I was able to financially step away from it. But Mm -hmm. I Were you scared about that decision? I wasn't. She probably was. Yeah. Um, But it also took up a lot of, it takes up a lot of time and mental space. You work a lot of Sundays you work a lot of nights and yeah. with, with young children and things, it, it's quite gruelling. Um, and you have always have a deadline. And you're always on a deadline. It, yeah. yeah, it's a competitive, hard, fast in, industry. I mean, yeah. I do miss the camaraderie, but I don't miss anything else about it. Mm. Uh, so I quit and my idea was to do a bit of uh, freelance journalism and maybe a bit of marketing in a in an industry I was interested in. But I spent a year and I sort of did three freelance stories, which is not a lot, and mm-hmm. <laughs> um, wasn't getting very far with things. And so my back was to the wall a bit at home because my wife was like, you didn't quit to retire. You're 48 years old. What's, oh, go- what, yeah. Yeah, what's going on? And it's an unhealthy thing, I think, yeah. for men and probably women as well to to just grind to a halt at that yep. age. Um, so that was sort of the setup. And then I, I read a book, uh, Noah Hawley, and I think the book's called After the Fall. And it's a little thrillery thing. And I, it was hand sold to me up at an Avalon bookshop one day and I read it. And I thought, you know, it was readable, it was good, but I thought, I reckon I could do that. And then I was reading fiction writers, serious sort of artists, talking about their trade and talking to other fiction writers about their trade. And the point that came through with all of them was that all you need to get started on a book is a strong idea, one simple strong idea. And if you have it, you'll know you've got it. Mm -hmm. Um, Before we go there, were you reading crime fiction at all outside of that book at the time? In recent years, it's really been a genre, Jane Harper, I guess. People are consuming it in very high volumes, particularly Australian crime. So were you on that bandwagon? I was in that I read 
uh, Scrublands oh, by yeah. Chris Hammer, Chris Hammer. And I read The Dry. So it was around that time. Yeah. Um, so I'd read The Dry and Scrublands. I'd loved Peter Temple. I hadn't read Wonderful. all of Peter Temple. But yeah, he'd been f- going for a while. Yeah. yeah. And my favourite Australian crime books would be um, The Broken Shore yeah. and Truth. So I, I'd read those and loved those. I don't, I don't read everything. I, I'd read a thing called November Road by Lou Burney, which is an American book that came out, I don't know, about, about that time, which was just wonderful. Mm. And so I'm attracted to that sort of uh, books a bit like that. And then I'd read a bit of Tana French uh, in the woods. I think my favourite book almost is... Um, Red Dragon by Thomas Harris, mm-hmm. and there's a bit of that in Black River, like the temp, mm. the template. Mm-hmm. But then I read other things as as well. Mm. Of course, yeah. So you've got all of that swirling in your head, and you think, oh well, I, I think I might be able to do this. Yeah, and well, what I thought was when I was reading about the idea, I thought, well, I've got an idea, and I I realised, well, you don't need everything mapped out. So I thought, okay, let's give it a shot. Mm-hmm. And I said to my wife, I'm writing a book. So she said, okay. Sounds good. And, and did you think it was crime then? Was that what you were thinking? Yes. So the uh, yes, I'd always thought it was crime, uh, and the idea was a journalist going back to the school where he where he'd been born, uh, but hadn't been back for a long time, to report on something that had gone wrong at the school. And I, mm. when the idea, I, I wasn't sure what that was, mm. but that was the setup. And I wanted to write crime because I wanted to write what Graham Greene would call an entertainment. So mm. I wanted it. I wanted to write something that would be enjoyable mm. for the reader. Do you know, for me, the success of ra- crime is a combination of things. Obviously, good writing, good storyline. That's a given. But there's also the character of the place. And you said earlier, talking about the school, you said it was a deserted school campus. And that, to me, conjures up so much in just a second, mm. doesn't it? Yeah. And I, yeah. I was lucky with that. Yeah. Because I just had that as an organic idea. And I, when I was writing it, I didn't realise the importance mm. of place mm-hmm. in crime. I mean, it's probably true in other, in other it's writing. It's super important in crime. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't realise I'd sort of struck gold with that until, mm. you know, we went to sell it to Alan and Unwin and what the reason they jumped on it was because of the setting mm. and they hadn't really seen it done mm. before. So mm. it's metropolitan, mm. but it's got this, we're talking a big campus, a big deserted campus in the middle of a city. So mm. I think that, and... And on a riverbank. I mean, on, where with, else do yeah, you see Yeah, with that? a tributary of a river. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think uh, I just I was just lucky to to fall into that. But also, I think it was good because I think if you start to if you come at it from a different way and think, okay, what do readers or publishers want, and then think, oh, and try and impose that, it probably doesn't work as well. So I was just lucky that I had this organic sort of idea that then grew, and it was what people were looking for. Mm. Okay, so you've got the idea and let's say you've got the skill, but you've got the skill in short form at this stage. Did you at all think, oh, wow, you know, 60,000 words, 90,000 words, wow, <laughs> where do I start? <laughs> yeah, I did a little bit. Uh, mm. And and also I with the skill in short form, I'm not sure I did. I, I think fiction and journalism are just completely different. Mm. I, don't, I don't think... I don't think my journalism helped me with my fiction writing at all. Oh, wow. Except maybe a bit of training in that 
I wasn't at a tabloid, but I was at a company that had a sort of tabloid ethos mm-hmm. and that so that gets drilled into a bit. Maybe I write more concisely than I would have because of that. Mm-hmm. But after that, I, d- I don't think uh, it was any help except for things like research. So mm-hmm. I did a lot of research for the book in that I interviewed a lot of cops and forensic medical doctors. Mm-hmm. So that that probably helped me. And also I, I set a, a, a sort of part of the book in a, in a newspaper office and one of the main characters is a journalist. Mm. So it's obviously good that I knew all of that. Well, I mean, that's where the autobiographical side comes into it. If you think about it too, Jane Harper, ex-journalist, I don't know if she's still writing, if she's still a journalist, but um, Michael Ro- Robotham, there's been quite a few. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I don't know. Uh, well, I was, speaking, I was speaking to my publisher about that. Um, I suppose the the industries, you know, run along a little bit together. And, mm. and you get even more of it in publishing in than sort of non-fiction mm. books. A lot mm. of journos do write non-fiction, mm. you know, from your sort of correspondence memoir mm-hmm. <laughs> onwards. Mm. And I suppose it's just a natural progression for a journalist mm. to write that, you know, they'd call it long form, mm. but it's, you know, it was very long form when it mm. becomes a book, so... Mm. I told you I was a podcast addict and I was listening to Roxanne Gay was there, you know, the writer, and they were talking about cultural appropriation. Her view on that was that if the book is well-written and well-researched and that character is immersed in whatever appropriation he is, then she doesn't care as a reader. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's probably a good a good way to look at it. Mm. Um, Because if we're going to go down that road, Mm -hmm. I mean, where do you end and, I mean, where do you start? Mm -hmm. You know what, we're not going to Well, you're not going to be a policeman if you're not a policeman. (laughs) Yeah, and also, I mean, you're not going to have the end chapter of Ulysses with a man writing the thoughts inside a woman's head. So if we want to remove that from the culture, good luck to us. Mm. She she was really, really great podcast in that she said that if she doesn't believe it, then it's just a bad book. Yeah, and I think that... I think that's right. Mm, mm. So talk to me about that character development. Um, Well, I was lucky. I wrote the book in nine months and uh, I had a publisher friend who wasn't looking to publish it but just agreed to read it for me because he was between publishing houses. That's Uh, useful. Yeah. And so he read it and said, look, this is where this is stuff you need to start doing, but I think you're going to need an editor. Mm-hmm. He wasn't an editor; he was a publisher. Mm-hmm. And so he put me in touch with a woman called Meredith Rose, who'd been at Penguin Random House, and mm-hmm. she'd left. She had edited my friend Richard McHugh's book. Oh, there we are. Yes. Yeah. So she'd left after. Um, well, Ben Ball was a publisher as well, so she'd left. Oh, he was the friend you were talking about. Yeah. Oh, I know Ben. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what a small world. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I went to uni with Ben, so we were just oh, sort of okay. old mates in that way. Yeah. Um, so he gave me a lot of sort of structural advice and then sicked me on to Meredith thinking, you know, you need a lot of work on this. Mm-hmm. So I was lucky to have her and I, she was, she was also just sort of not at a publishing house. She was out. Um, so I, I contracted. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I worked on the book for more than two years. Yeah. Pro- wow. Probably 10 drafts with her. Were you surprised about that? 
Uh, I was a little surprised to begin with because I thought this book is so good, it's just straight to, you know, Netflix. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that was a bit of a shock. Yeah. But then I got in the swing of it and she taught me a lot as well, sort of how yeah. to spot things like superfluous detail. Yeah. And then there was there was underwriting, but there's also overwriting mm-hmm. and overwriting's pretty easy to do mm. and not very good. Mm. So there's a lot of work on at that level, just on the prose, evening mm-hmm. it all out, but also getting back to your question, the characters. So we had two points of view. I had to figure out point of view as well, point of view control, because mm-hmm. I had it shifting around within scenes and to all sorts of people and, you know, all mm. these no-nos that you don't know about. So we had to bring that under control. And then, so then we had a journalist, a male journalist, 45, she didn't really tell me how to do it. She just said, we got to flesh him. You've got to flesh him out more. Mm. We can't just be a trauma in his past and he drinks too much and mm. he's obsessive consulting, you know. Mm. So that just became something I worked on draft after draft. And at the same time, there's a female detective sergeant from New South Wales Homicide. And she, one of the things we, Meredith's idea and that I went along with was, uh, from, say, draft three, we we started to look at the police investigation into the crime becoming the main thrust of the book, mm-hmm. whereas I'd had it in the early drafts as the uh, media reporting. And that worked quite well because we already had a good, solid sort of sub-theme, I suppose, or with, the, with the journalist and the media. And so it was just about pulling the police up and, mm-hmm. and making them drive the plot a bit more. So it sounds horrendous as far as a redraft, but in a way it was... It sounds almost impossible, <laughs> you know, to do. Yeah. Yeah, you must have been overwhelmed. Well, I just kept plugging away. I turned yeah. up at the desk. I had time. Yeah. I wasn't doing anything else. And mm. I turned up at the desk every day, mm. Saturday, Sunday, Christmas Eve, mm-hmm. I would turn up at the desk. And we did it in chunks as well. So it sounds horrendous, but it wasn't too bad. And I think the point that people would make is the people who are going to get there with the book are the people who can take criticism in the best sense of the word and revise. I mean, if you read um, that fellow who won the Booker Prize with Lincoln in the Bardo, he wrote a book about... George Saunders. Yeah, he's... Uh, We've had him in. Oh, right. You know his book about reading the, the Russian short stories? Yes, sw- the last one. Yeah, yeah, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. Yeah. That's really about learning, not learning to write, but teaching writing. And mm. um, he Because makes, that's what he does, yeah. He makes the point, it, looking at 15 US students out of a pool of 50,000 that they choose mm. in their school, the ones who make it are the ones, it's as simple as this, it's the ones who revise. Mm -hmm. And I think, well, that's certainly the reason I got there, was just revise, revise, revise. Mm -hmm. And work with a good professional. Mm -hmm. I had Tim Winton in a few years back, and I've got to say he's one of my favourite Australian writers. And he's been my favourite because, one, I love the story, and The Writers is my favourite book, but also I love every sentence. I feel as though he just constructs every sentence so beautifully. And I should have known better, right? Because this was only about five or six years ago. I should have known better. I've been doing this a long time. But I had an image in my head because as a reader, that's how I read it. That's what you want as a writer. That's just how he writes, you know. He came in here (laughs) and we talked about it and he might write a sentence, he said, 20 or 30 times. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And it gets down to that sentence level. 
I mean, I, I agree with you on, on Tim Winton. I recently read, um, I'm ashamed to say it, well, not recently, but a few years back, I actually read Cloud Street for the mm-hmm. first time mm-hmm. and it wasn't what I was expecting at all. No. Um, I thought it would be a much sort of fluffier, nicer book, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not that. And I remember it well and I, what I remember, I suppose, are, are the characters. But I also do remember, yeah, the, the writing. It's a beautiful it's writing. It's a beautiful writing. Yeah, we had a little bit of that. So after my book was sold to Alan Unwin, Malcolm Knox had, is a sort of scout for Alan Unwin. He'd read it and he took it into the... Fellow journalist and fellow author. Yeah, yep. and someone I didn't know, but I had a mutual friend so yeah. put us in touch. So he read it and he, he loved it and took it into Alan Unwin and it sort of went from there. But I then did two drafts with Malcolm editing me mm-hmm. and that was interesting. But just to get back to that sort of sentence level... We, we didn't have a fight, but we had a standoff over one word mm-hmm. in 75,000. So yeah, wow. By then, the book was in shape that we could focus. But that was the level of attention the book got. And I think it gets that because it's a first novel, so they have time. Yeah. So I've got to write my second novel by May next year. Mm. So I've got to write it in a year. But this mm. one I had four years and I didn't have a publisher. So mm. we could really, you could really work at it. And I think that might be why debut fiction, if it does work, might be one of the reasons they can be good because people, you know, have, have worked with the author. It used to be so hard to launch a debut author. I mean, I've been in this business a long time and I don't know why. And that's a good point. It was because if people didn't know who you were, they didn't want to read your book, right? But that has changed. And only recently, I would say maybe in the past 10 years. And you're right. It could be because one, you're really not writing for anyone other than yourself, are you? No. And you've got the time. You've got the time to make it. And you never get that back. Yeah. You get yeah. the time. And you can read published authors. I can read a published author now and look at it and think, it's not the author's fault in a way. It's <laughs> just that they they ran out of time and it just needs two more drafts done on yeah. it or three more drafts done yeah. on it. I, I think you see that a lot. Yeah. Are you worried about writing a second book? I'm not worried. Or do ab- you think you've nailed it? <laughs> no. No. I'm not worried. I've learned a lot from the editors I've worked with. So I worked with Angela Handley at Alan and Unwin after Malcolm had done some work with me. So it got edited by one of their in-house editors and with Meredith. So Angela sort of inherited Meredith, what Meredith had done. We we think the book was about 85% when it landed there. So there was certainly room for improvement. But the fact that it then had time to, we had time to go through it again. So we probably went through it. I probably went through it six times with with Alan and Unwin, having already been through it 10 times with Meredith. Mm. And it can get, things can get overworked as well. But hopefully that, that hasn't happened with, with this book. So no, I'm not, I'm not worried about it, uh, but I am quite collaborative. So Mm -hmm. I will get it out. Mm -hmm. I'll get it out to fewer people this time. Mm Mm-hmm. And because you will now know the path anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you just probably don't want too many people. Friends and family can be good, but it can be a bit pointless as well. Mm. I did get some good little insights from friends and family on this book early on, but it can also just be, oh, that's, that's really good or whatever. I mean, yeah. no one's going to take it apart like a professional editor will. Mm-hmm. As I said, I've learned a lot of just the technique stuff. Mm. So I won't be making the mistake about point of view. Mm. That's all lined out. Mm. And also, I think I've learnt to spot, as I said, that the detail that's not needed. Mm. But also, you've got to be careful because detail is so important. Mm-hmm. But it's got to be good. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and it's got to be helping plot or developing character or just mm. whatever it is. So I'm probably better at all that stuff as well. Mm. And do you like the process of writing, of sitting down to write a book? Yeah, I'm really drawn to it yeah. So every morning. That uh, helps. Ah, uh, yeah. And I think it's quite common. I've yeah. heard it, the Irish describe it as desk hunger. Yeah. You know, this pulled, and I really have that. I mean, yeah. I was reading a story about Herman Melville, yeah. you know, in 1860s, yeah. you know, America, and his mother-in-law was staying and he had to take her by horse and carriage somewhere before yeah. he could start his day. Yeah. He literally didn't stop the horse and carriage. He booted her out and turned around to get home because he <laughs> needed to get to <laughs> the start riding. So I do have that. And I think that's a very common thing. Mm. I'm, I'm sick of it by the end of the day mm. and then I'm ready pretty well fresh and ready to go every the next morning. Mm. Matthew, we're out of time. Um, the book is called Black River. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.